Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is not from Europe, but is involved in helping entrepreneurs in Europe. Daniel Epstein is the founder and CEO of the Unreasonable Group. Unreasonable is dedicated to supporting growth equity entrepreneurs positioned to make the greatest impact to society. Part investment firm, part media house, and most importantly, a global community, unreasonable partners with multinational institutions like Barclays in the UK to align them with impactful growth stage entrepreneurs. Today, Unreasonable actively supports over 200 entrepreneurs and has generated 3.7 billion in revenues and impacting the lives of more than 550 million individuals across 180 countries. Daniel has been named Fortune Magazine's one of the world's 50 greatest leaders alongside the likes of Bill Gates and Tim Cook. He was also Forbes' top 30 most impactful entrepreneurs and was awarded Entrepreneur of the World Award, along with Richard Branson at the Global Entrepreneurship Forum. Pretty impressive. I'm delighted to have Daniel on the show today. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Anita. And, and don't believe any of those awards. I think they make my, my mom proud. and They make me feel like I need to work to earn it. <laughs> I, but I, you know, great, grateful to be here with you. Excellent. So I'd like to start off by talking about your early years a bit. Were there any people or events that influenced you to take on the entrepreneurship path? Like, how did you end up here? Fair question. And yes, (laughs) is the answer, of course. So I I grew up in a really small town. Um, As you mentioned, not in Europe, unfortunately, I think for me. I grew up in a small town in the Pacific Northwest in the US called Blaine. And there were about 2,000 people who lived there. Uh, when I grew up playing in the force with my older brothers in our free time. But I had a, a lifelong best friend. I, I think we first met in first grade. Uh, and we, we became really close. Um, Brendan Mulholland. And I would like to say in a lot of ways, we're really similar. Just Brendan happens to be better at, at everything. He had a double full ride scholarship to university, scholastic and athletic. He was... Yeah, whatever that was, um, just kind of top uh, on everything. Won all the state math competitions and everything else, right? Um, so him and I used to talk about you know our kind of pipe dreams for the future, and and it f- seems like we could do one or two things a- as we got older. We realized we're, we're either going to become pirates or we're going to become entrepreneurs. And and what I mean by that, uh, obviously we were younger, but we said pirates. But both of those career options were not accepting the status quo. Right. The the life of a pirate was to live outside of the status quo. I am, and the life of an entrepreneur was to reinvent and reimagine it. The, the irony is because truly he was smarter, we always thought that he would go the entrepreneur route, I would go the pirate route. Um, but we actually <laughs> flipped. Yeah, he's, he's captain of a commercial uh, salmon fishing boat in Alaska for about six weeks out of the year and then lives with his wife up in Norway and travels the world. And I think he's learned seven languages over the past couple of years and doesn't, doesn't work within the you know standard economy. And so for me, though, the route of entrepreneurship was a tool or opportunity uh, to look at how the world's current functioning to realize that not only can we reimagine it, but we can actually do something about it. I went to university in Colorado, which is which is where I'm calling in from in Boulder. And I started out studying math, finance, and econ because I figured if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, yeah, I should learn yep. <laughs> those skills, right? Uh, and I had to take a humanities 101 course. Uh, that ended up being an introduction to philosophy. And I sat in on that class and I fell madly in love 
the way I talked about it was that it was like hedonistic mind candy. Like <laughs> just, I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed philosophy. And, and I realized that in math, finance and econ, at least how I was being taught. Now I was being taught uh, what to think. Mm-hmm. And in philosophy, I was being taught how to think. And what that translated to was how to question. And, and so I actually dropped out of um, the other three degrees and studied philosophy. And I think that the roots of unreasonable actually lie in philosophy. Truly questioning, what is the purpose of business? Hmm. Right? Why, why start a company? And, you know, recently I went back into Adam Smith, who in a lot of ways would be the founding philosopher or godfather of modern economic theory and capitalism. He wrote the, the book, The Wealth of Nations, which kind of spurred that. But he had two seminal pieces in his life. And the first one was, it was titled The Theory on Moral Sentiments. Uh, and for him, the idea of capitalism and a capitalistic system came out of the desire to find the most morally just system for people in society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the goal of Unreasonable is to you know, repurpose capitalism back to its original intention, right? which is how do we ensure a more just society now, socially and environmentally. So I give a lot of credit to my philosophy education, which I know sounds crazy. I remember when I started studying it, my parents questioned <laughs> the validity of that degree, but it kind of catapulted my thinking in this direction. And there are so many individuals though along the way, and I'm happy to tell yeah, any um, stories around pivots or when I wanted to give up and quit and somebody you know helped put me back on the right path because there, there are countless stories there. Yeah, no, I think that would be really interesting actually because entrepreneurship is a tough path. It's not easy. And I would love to hear a pivotal story for you in your entrepreneurial journey that either made you pivot or stay focused on what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a great point. I think there's a misconception in the public, even with entrepreneurs, that we can be overnight wonders, right? I was on a panel a couple of years ago with one of the founders of Pinterest. I'm and Pinterest had just blown up. And now everybody knew about it every, all over the world. Somebody in the audience, they, they asked the founder of Pinterest that said, well, how does it feel to be an overnight wonder? Nobody had ever heard of you. And then you were everywhere. He kind of grabbed the mic from me and said, we're, we're an 11-year overnight wonder, to be clear. <laughs> we went bankrupt three times. Uh, we repurposed and repositioned and pivoted the business model four times. And we finally got here. And so to your point, it's a long, hard journey. Uh, and there are a number of moments. What yeah. was the best advice you got in these moments of inflection that happens for every yeah. entrepreneur? So the best advice I got that really led to the genesis of Unreasonable was I was a student. I was working on three startups while in university. One of them ended up evolving into what is Unreasonable. And we had partnered with an organization called the Global Institute for Leadership and Civic Development. And we launched something called the Global Entrepreneurship Institute. We ran our first pilot program, 17 entrepreneurs, 14 countries from all around the world came together to launch companies trying to solve these tough problems. I was still in university though. So there's a lot of moving pieces. And one of my partners in that, she actually came back. And at the end of that program, uh, myself and the co-founder, we had wanted to give the leadership back to the participants. We felt like that would make for the most agile organization would be that the customers actually end up becoming the leadership, if, if that makes sense. And we got sued from one of our partners who said it wasn't ours to um, give. And so there's a discrepancy of belief. Now, I'm, I'm still in university and I get a letter of intent to be sued you know, from their legal counsel. And that's, um, that was a punch in the stomach. 
I'm, and, and I truly actually, I slipped into what I would categorize as episodic depression. I didn't eat. I I didn't really sleep for a couple of weeks. Horrible. Still being a student, I needed to seek some advice. And so I met with my friend, Paul Journey, who was running the entrepreneurship center at the university. Paul's prior to his career in academia is an entrepreneur. So we could really resonate with one another. And I come into his office and I look horrible. And that's the first thing he says. (laughs) And then I sit down and says, you know, what's happening? What's going on? It was a woe me story. I felt victimized, right? I was... Uh, you know, trying to launch an organization is just trying to do good for society. And, you know, here was somebody who I really trusted coming after us to sue us because we wanted to do what we felt like was the right thing. And it was going to be the end of it. And I said, I failed. And Paul looked at me and his advice was really explicit. He said, failure is only failure if you don't start or if you stop. And he said, so you started. So don't stop. He goes, get out of my office. You learned an invaluable lesson, which is you need to have contracts with people you work with (laughs) or else this is bound to happen. So get out of my office, do it better, do it now and apply these lessons that you just learned because that was very inexpensive tuition if you think about it in that way. And that really resonated with me. I, I would add a caveat. I would say... As an entrepreneur, failure is only failure if you don't start, if you stop, or I believe if you do something against your moral fiber. Um, those would be the only categories of failure. Everything else is the lesson and a stepping stone along the way. And so it was out of the ashes of that kind of pilot program that we actually built unreasonable. Of course, now I have contracts. It's not a slight against the person that we had a disagreement with. I was foolhardy, but it was a strong moment. And I went from truly feeling depressed and like a victim and having no power to realizing well, hang on, I can just do it again and do it better. Oh, I think it's such a wonderful story because I'm sure as an entrepreneur, everyone has found themselves in this kind of situation where they've gone with trust or gut and then found themselves on the other side where they did not want to be. And I think this story probably will resonate with a lot of them. So before I go into unreasonable, I know that you were also an entrepreneur and you started a few initiatives on your own. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your own entrepreneurial journey before you start an unreasonable group, which is there to help other entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to philosophy. I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship other than it's really hard. Uh, This is when I'm 18, right? And just starting out in university. And uh, I had all these business ideas and nothing's resonating. Nothing clicks. I'd walk around campus and people would ask, what do you want to be? You grew up as an entrepreneur, and they say, Well, what's your idea? And I said, I didn't have any. <laughs> it was awkward. But one night I was with my journal, and nothing's resonating. So I decided to put on my newfound philosopher's hat. And I asked myself a simple question I said, What do all entrepreneurs have in common? And so I wrote on the first line of my journal, All entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. I wrote on the second line, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. I wrote on the third line, Therefore, I'm going to work on problems that's worthy of my life's work. Um, is how I framed it. I figured if I'm going to leverage my relationships, my sleep, my equity into starting something, why not start a company that if we succeed, we, we bend history in the right direction. It's more exciting. And so that was the start. So the first company I started was uh, oriented around trying to make higher education more affordable. In, in the US, tuition for colleges can be remarkably expensive. You could be looking at 30,000 US dollars a year to go to a public school. A little bit outrageous. Yep. <laughs> so, so we started something. It was your stereotypical first company though. So when, when I went to the University of Colorado, I was an out-of-state student, which meant I would have to pay $30,000 a year in tuition. If you're an in-state student, you would at that point in time pay about $4,000 a year. So it's a huge difference in affordability. Um, 
And I realized that the key to getting in-state tuition was to basically follow these, you know, relatively clear procedures. I won't go into the details, uh, but but basically anybody can do it. It's complicated. They make it intentionally complicated, but it's not hard to do. And so I had got an in-state tuition, and I was sitting in the dorms with my friends in my first year of university after I got in-state. And there's three friends who are all out-of-state students, and they said, you know, oh, you're so lucky, or you were able to do that because you're so smart, or whatever that was. They were just deflecting. And I said, guys, what are you talking about? It's not hard. This is easy. Let me show you how. And they're like, no, we won't be able to do it. I said, well, hang on. I'll make you a deal. If I'll help you get in-state tuition, if I do, why don't you just pay me 10% of what you save? And and that immediately went from a project to one of those first companies. Because what I realized is that inner-city students, by and large, were not able to afford the type of tuition that we were paying. So we started this company, Tuition Specialists, supporting students who wanted to go to a public school like University of Colorado, but weren't from Colorado on being able to save them, you know, $100,000 over a four-year period. Uh, but it was a very simple company and it just kind of went. Um, it went until the state changed its legislation. I, I think in part because of what we were doing, but it, the process no longer uh, you know, was Makes fit sense. for what we were doing. Yeah. So that was the first company. The second one, we were looking at ecotourism. I've always been a lover of, of the outdoors. Ecotourism for me is a very pure form of business. It's a sustainable kind of economic development while through the preservation of the environment, um, what it's done well. The challenge with ecotourism when I started to look at that is when you look at it at a global landscape, the economics are, are not very just, as I'd put it. It's more like coffee trade. So if you book a trip with any guide in the developing world around an ecotourism kind of expedition or adventure. Uh, typically, that guide gets 9% of what you pay. You pay $1,000 to go up Kilimanjaro. The guide who takes you up the mountain gets $90. Just like coffee trade, it's subsistence yep. wages. I um, and looked at that and said, well, hang on, the internet was designed to disrupt intermediaries. Let's flip the economics. Let's connect people who want to get outside directly to the guides. Let's give the guides 90% instead of 9%. Um, so... We, we launched that business. Uh, it was called Sway Sports, Snow, Water, Air, Earth Sports. We changed it to Unreasonable Adventures later because there was too many companies flying around <laughs> at the same time. We had a couple hundred guys that we were working with all around the world. It was working like very well. The challenge with it was bandwidth, which is at the same time that Unreasonable Adventures was really picking up a reasonable group as a company was taking off. And when you're a startup, yeah, as, as a CEO, of course, every teammate is actually critical. But to raise investment, the investors need to know that you're 100% committed to that company. And so for Unreasonable Adventures, to take it to the next level, we had to raise capital. And so for me, it came down to a decision, which is both these companies are picking up in a really big way where I want to focus my efforts. And I got addicted to leverage and realized that Yes, if I'm lucky, I can create one or two or three companies in my lifetime that maybe impact you know a couple million lives in a positive way. Um, like Unreasonable Adventures was, I think, positioned to. Or we could strive to be the most effective company in the world at supporting entrepreneurs already on the front lines, already solving problems. So that brings us to the Unreasonable Group. Yeah. How would you describe or define the Unreasonable Group? What is it? Great and question. more importantly, <laughs> what is it not? Because I look through, it seems amazing, but I don't think I could do a good job of defining it. It's a great question. So why we exist, repurpose capitalism, 
what we are, this is why it's hard for people to understand is we're a community. I would say we create community between entrepreneurs, institutions, and investors to profitably solve pressing global problems. But it's um, rare for a company to be a community first. And then everything after that. So yes, we have an investment arm. You know, we just launched a new initiative called The Collective for Individual Investors to syndicate in a, into kind of our top tier companies and in addition to our investment fund. Yes, we have you know, a large storytelling component in a media house and team. Yes, we have a network of just over 600 mentors from all around the world. We work with over a thousand different sources of capital and financing. But uh, all of that was built around what's you know at the center of what we do, which is the entrepreneurs that we support. And, and the primary way we support them is by connecting them across this community, whether that's investors, mentors, multinational partners, experts in different trades. Um, so it's just rare for a company to be a community and be a for-profit business that has ambitions of impacting lives of billions of people and, and moving ideally hundreds of billions of dollars. What we're not, <laughs> that is a very important question. What we are not is what we probably most uh, look like, which is I would say we're not an accelerator. And that's because accelerators and incubators specialize typically with early stage entrepreneurs. And in really their focus for a reasonable, as you mentioned in the intro, we work with growth stage companies. It's about doing anything possible to ensure that they're successful, whether that's going into team culture, looking at multi-continent supply chain management, or talking about financing. It doesn't matter. But once our entrepreneurs are into the fellowship, we support them for life. So it's easy to look at what we do and say, oh, you run programs for entrepreneurs and try to help you know scale them at a growth stage. But the truth is, is that we you know, handpick these CEOs and we try to give them an unfair advantage for life into perpetuity. So instead of being an accelerator, I would say we're a fellowship. I think what you do is really fascinating, but I need to understand it a bit more. So yeah. if I think about a company, especially if they're post-Series A, yeah. they have a bunch of investors that have invested yes. in them and potentially yeah. anything they need in terms of recruiting, advisors, connections yeah. into companies they would go to their board and they would go to their investors. So maybe you could take a few examples from your portfolio on what kind of companies are a good fit for Unreasonable beyond the social mission aspect of it. And how do they Mm -hmm. come, especially if they're post-series A, how do you get connected to them? Yeah. Okay. Great, great questions. You know, first thing I would say, we've mentioned entrepreneurship is hard. And every scale is hard. And what we've seen that is as CEOs get to a later stage in their company, let's say post-series A to public, that the journey actually gets lonelier and lonelier for them. And that's because, yes, they have a board of directors and they have institutional investors on their cap table. And although they can go to them for, hey, we need help connecting to IKEA to be able to sell this product into their shelves, it's very hard to go to them and say, I'm burned out. I'm not figuring out how to balance life and work. I'm concerned that actually we raised too much capital and we can't live up to the valuation that we just had. It's You can't go to them in confidence easily, which is, I think, why people say being a CEO is the loneliest job in the world. So the biggest value add, which is why I say community first, right, is we're a confidant. We support these entrepreneurs in any facet of life and work. You know, number of conversations that I've had with our CEOs that they don't have with their spouses is uncanny. And I think it's because 
it's, it's hard even for their spouses to understand what they're going through unless they're also a CEO of a rapid growth company, right? It's a unique experience in life. So I think that's primarily where we add a lot of values to be a, like a true confidant. And then uh, typically we can just give a lot more access um, than any, any given you know, group of you know, five board members, no matter how amazing they are, it's, it's hard for them to open up a network, I think, as large as, as what we've built. And a couple examples. I'll pick some European examples. So Stephen Dring is the founder of a company called Growing Underground. Uh, this is based in London. Love this business. It's a future of farming, future of food company. They've taken old World War II bunkers that are underneath the streets of London. They're about, about 50 meters uh, below the surface. And these were, you know, totally dilapidated from World War II. Nobody's using them and he's converted them into hydroponic farms. Amazing company. They're able to grow fresh vegetables um, of all varieties and then literally take an elevator up to the street level and sell them right there. So your food might travel a thousand feet instead of a couple thousand kilometers to get to your kitchen table or into your restaurant. I, you know, they've been just phenomenal company. I've seen huge growth. Yeah, another I am example there. This is actually in the U.S., but sticking on that theme would be 80 acres. Um, instead of working within a tight space, you know, underground, like a World War II bunker, 80 acres takes over in kind of industrial scale spaces and turns them into robotic-driven, AI-driven aeroponic farms. And that means uh, no soil, no sunlight. And the reason they're called 80 acres, which is, I think, a compelling name once, once you hear the backstory, is the first form, farm that they had, it sat on a city block. So it was one-fourth of an acre. And the crop yield that they produced was the equivalent of what would take 80 acres in normal farming. So the first farm they had was 320 times more efficient than traditional agriculture. They're now far beyond that. They actually just raised um, their Series B a pretty substantial round. And, and actually, they came into Reasonable, which I'll explain, via our partnership with Barclays called Unreasonable Impact. And Barclays was actually one of the investors in, into their company and is, is looking to help their international expansion as well. So, you know, there, there's tons more companies. We work with the most efficient hydrogen cell-powered vehicle that we can find in the world. It's based out of Wales. You know, a brilliant Welsh couple. The car gets 300 miles to a single liter of hydrogen. The only thing that comes out of the exhaust pipe is purified water. They literally make tea out of it just to show. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. It's coming out of the exhaust pipe, but you can't drink hot tea from it. We're helping them a lot around scaling their efforts into China and, and finding the appropriate financing there. But uh, how we find these entrepreneurs, uh, to your question, there's no application process. Our goal is to support the most likely to have an impact CEOs and technologies on the planet um, and to scale what is working. So you might be bringing distributed solar to 2 million households uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's profitable. Uh, we'll reach out to you directly um, and say, hey, how can we take you from 2 million to 200 million households faster? And that, that's in essence what we try to do at the fellowship. So we reach out, we privately invite we don't charge the entrepreneurs anything uh, for participation. We have no rights, warranties, guarantees, anything like that. There's no tuition. We cover all their costs. And now the reason we're able to do that are multinational partners. So our biggest one being Barclays. They, they cover basically the costs of the fellowship for the CEOs um, because they know that these CEOs are the future titans of industry. And as one of the world's largest banks, they want to bank their growth. They want to help them scale. Um, and honestly, it's a brilliant partnership um, because you know, Barclays is, I think they're 330 years old as an institution. And so on the surface of it, them partnering with this small scrappy you know, company called Unreasonable doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you dig into it, you know, our job is to scale what works, 
right, around these really effective technologies and businesses. And you know, a bank's job is to help scale companies. That's what they've been doing for 330 years. So they have this deep institutional knowledge and international access that their C-suite opens up for entrepreneurs because they believe so clearly that the types of companies we're working with are the future companies that they're going to end up taking public or you know, will take over markets. It's almost like you're a scout for these partners, these institutional partners. Yeah. So in terms of the types of companies that you look for, yeah. is there any verticals, any areas of specialization or any guardrails that you have based yeah. on the requirements from your partners on what type of companies you should be looking into? Or is that completely free for you to do? It is not completely free for us to do. It would be great if it was. We want to ensure that the, the companies we're bridging relationships with and trust with to our partners, that they are aligned with the core trajectory of our partners' businesses. That is an important thing to call out. You know, we have a bottom-up theory of change, which is find the most disruptive entrepreneurial solutions on the planet, bring them to scale so that we can have more impact faster. But we also have a top-down theory of change, which is if we can help Barclays or Pearson or Accenture or Johnson & Johnson or Nike transition to sustainability profitably faster, then the world's going to benefit immensely from that. Um, and so we want to ensure that the pedigree of the companies that we bring together are aligned with the business interests of our partners. So you know, baseline requirements, if a company is based in the US where it is easier to raise capital, we look for a minimum um, that you've raised at least $30 million dollars in financing or, or, or you've generated at least $15 million in revenue. And that would be the floor uh, to qualify to come into the fellowship. You know, a lot of the companies we bring in, they're already at the $100 million plus kind of mark when we start working with them. Internationally, we cut that in half. So internationally, we say, have you raised at least $15 million or generated at least $7.5 million in revenue? What that just means to us is that you've been validated in one way or another by the market. And that in some way, the technology has been de-risked um, because we do work with a very uh, advanced, cutting-edge technological businesses. And we do want to see some, some market validation. So with Barclays, as an example, we focus squarely on the green economy and on job creation. So what, what that means is we work with companies, um, actually, like, like the ones I just mentioned, like River Simple, the hydrogen cell-powered vehicle, like 80 acres, like growing underground, who the more money they make, the healthier the planet will be. That's the green economy aspect. But that also includes you know, renewable energy, transportation, sustainable city design, future of protein synthesis, carbon sequestration. Like There's so much there in yeah. terms of green economy. The second side is uh, if this company succeeds, is it positioned to create at least 500 jobs, good jobs in the next five years? So we are looking for rapid growth companies. Why would Barclays care about those two things? Right, One, green economy. Two, job creation. Part of it is that there's good people at every company. Good people want to do good. But the business interests... It was the, the CEO of the investment bank, Joe McGrath. Him and I had had a conversation. I asked him, I would have thought that Barclays wanted to work with us on the future of banking and financial inclusion, which we would love to do. Right. I, why are you interested in the green economy and the jobs? And I told you know, the team at Barclays, we're not going to partner with them if this feels like sponsorship. Everybody knows sponsorship is astroturf. Like this needs to you know, authentically align with your core business and your path. And Joe had said, "Well, the green economy is going to do the same thing that the internet did." His analogy, which is the internet is, is it eventually will permeate every market 
every industry, every sector, every geography. Because green's going to do the same. It's inevitably the future of business. It's just more profitable. And so we need to become the smartest green bank in the world. That was his first point on the green economy. And the second one on job creation. So look, if your company is going to create 500 jobs in five years as a minimum and a threshold of growth, those are probably going to need a good bank to help you finance that growth. We believe, these were his words, these are the future tides of industry and we want to partner with them. And so it became immediately clear. You know, our partnership with Pearson, together we look at the future of education and learning. And you know, Pearson's the largest education company on the planet. They have a deep vested interest in not reaching 100 million learners every day, but how do we help them go to 200 million? What that means is that you're going to see digitization and personalization of education and learning. It needs to be oriented, and Pearson knows this, towards efficacy. can't be oriented to a degree. It needs to be oriented to an actual job in, in the real world. Education is now lifelong. So how do we think about uh, reskilling and upskilling this workforce to be set for you know, a digital economy and so on? So, so we're directly tied into the path of Pearson as a business. And really, we serve as more of an R&D engine, I think, than anything. Because we're, we're, our entrepreneurs are giving them a glimpse of the future. But they're doing it now. right? Uh, and it works in the market. And so the hope uh, at the end of the day is that what we see are really unlikely partnerships right? between the world's largest institutions multiple hundreds of years old companies or governments with these really disruptive, agile kind of breakthrough uh, technologies uh, and and entrepreneurs. Um, And we create a powerless dynamic between them for them to actually partner. Whether that means joint venturing, whether that means that you know our partners become customers of our entrepreneurs all the time, or whether that means that they start to invest into them. It's an exciting opportunity. What big companies are great at, which is global scale, international reach, really streamlined operations and compliance and everything else. That's what rapid growth entrepreneurs are not good at. <laughs> and that's what they're really struggling with, right? But what entrepreneurs are really good at, which is quickly prototyping, using the most advanced technologies or even building them, taking high risk really quickly, having fast cycles of learning. That's what big companies struggle with the most. Uh, and so if we can create that dynamic where they can feed off each other, there's huge benefit. Yeah. And I think in Europe, especially, I think it's so important because it gives you another exit for these startups. You're not just thinking IPO. You have like the US has a much more active M&A economy that you don't currently have as much in Europe. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Completely, completely agree. We actually haven't seen a uh, complete acquisition of any of our companies, of the entrepreneurs we support into the partners that we have. We've seen a lot of investment capital flow though. We've seen joint ventures get formed. But yes, it gives you a really good path to exit, especially if you're in an emerging market too, where going public really isn't even really an option. These partnerships are really helpful. Makes a lot of sense. So obviously, I would be amiss if I didn't talk about COVID and the current state of the world. How has COVID affected your business? I mean, a lot of companies are putting social goals aside to focus on business recovery these days. So given that your companies have a social angle to it, you know, how are they dealing with the current pandemic and what are you doing to support them? What a good question. So one thing is, it's not that the companies we work with have social goals. It is the core reason for their existence. And what we've actually seen is 
most of the companies we support have benefited tremendously because of the global awareness that has been brought up by COVID. So food's a good example. The cracks in our system around food insecurity and inefficiency in terms of production have been very exposed because of COVID. And companies like Memphis Meats, as an example, it's a cell-based meat company that we work with. They literally grow meat, duck, chicken, steak out of stem cells. They raised the largest round in, in uh, you know, the history of cell-based meat production right, right in the middle of COVID because factory farming needs to become a thing of the past. Right? We raise and kill 70 billion animals a year for human consumption. So uh, a company like Memphis Meats you know, is 99.99% more efficient on water consumption. You don't have to raise or kill any animals. It's 99.999% more efficient on land consumption. So uh, they're taking off in terms of investors wanting to get into that business, be that SoftBank or Tyson or Cargill. You know, Tyson Cargill are the largest meat producers in the United States. So there, uh, I would say, I'm, you know, I mentioned growing underground 80 acres. Uh, we work with uh, Aero Farms, Alaska Life. There's, there's a number of vertical farming businesses we support. Mm-hmm. And when you see technologies that are 400 times more efficient than the standard technology, they're inevitable. And so I, I do think that this has been a really big catalyst for them to help scale their efforts and for cities to clamor for them to bring their vertical urban farms into their environment because supply chains got broken up because of COVID. When we look at a standard type of education, which would be in the classroom, which already doesn't reach billions of people around the world, but we're all suffering without the ability to go into a classroom. And so the companies you know, that we're supporting that are ed tech platforms like Classcraft is a great example. It's an amazing business. They were reaching about 3 million students around the world. It's gamified learning through a virtual environment. And they're really teaching uh, soft skills like collaboration, like being able to debate and disagree, like grit, like resilience and so on. They've tripled their user base. They now have 9 million students using that platform in, in over 180 countries. Just They can't even come close to keeping up with demand uh, from school systems and from teachers and from students around the world who are like, we need something that is engaging, that's digital, that's personalized, and that's going to help with kind of the mental fortitude of our students moving forward. Healthcare companies, yeah. we work with 1MG. It's the largest mobile healthcare application in India, 33 million active users on that platform. They, they exploded because of COVID because people were scared to leave their houses. Um, and so what we've seen is remarkable growth actually pretty much across the board with our companies because I think that COVID is an accelerant yep. to what was going to happen in the next 10 years anyways. And so these companies that were positioned around solving really hard societal and environmental problems, um, they're in a strange way, they're benefiting from the crisis. Yeah, no, I think that that is what I'm hearing across the board in terms of tech companies, startups, because everything that they're working on is disrupting, reinventing, reimagining or improving. And what COVID has done is really accelerate that adoption across the board. Yeah. Well, it showed so much of our system was was breaking. And now it's and so it, it is, you know, that whole idea that entrepreneurs, you know, look at a market failure with a curiously warped perspective and see a market opportunity, right? I, that, you know, our job is to, once again, reimagine status quo. The world is more receptive to the status quo being reimagined than ever before because of COVID. And so I think that's why we're, we're seeing this, you know, big uptake. Doesn't mean it's been easy and fast growth and especially in a remote environment has been hard. I think culture has been 
the, the reoccurring theme and for our team as well. That's been hardest for, for entrepreneurs to keep up with. Yeah, you've mentioned culture a couple of times. So yeah. I want to ask you quickly about that. And then I do want to also touch on how people listening to this show, how entrepreneurs can get in touch with you and how they yeah. can apply to be part yeah. of the fellowship. So yeah. maybe you can you can talk about that first, like how do yeah. entrepreneurs get in touch? Is there an application process? Is it a cold email to you? What would be the best way? Yeah. And then yeah. you can talk a little bit about culture and how yeah. you help companies build culture. So to get in touch with us, actually the easiest thing is just a reasonablegroup.com slash connect. We have a form at the bottom of that page. We do not have an application process, but if you are really interested, then you could certainly reach out to us. And then I would end up connecting you to our venture selection team. who would just dig into your company, your operations, the impact you want to have and see if we're a great fit or not. And, and if we are, then uh, invitation is kind of the next process there. So please do reach out. Same goes for investors if they're you know, interested in collaborating. We don't charge either side of the equation. So when it comes to culture, I think the first thing we do is, is we help our entrepreneurs think about it as a strategic imperative. The transition from entrepreneur to CEO is very awkward and painful <laughs> because everything that made you a really successful entrepreneur will typically hurt you as you start to really scale your company. The analogy I like to use what one of our mentors, his name's Kamran Alahyan. He, he started uh, three public companies, um, three companies private, had huge acquisitions. So really successful entrepreneur. At one point in time, he was running two public companies at the same time. Which I don't know anybody. I don't know wow. anybody else who's done that. <laughs> so you have two companies, both public, both with thousands of employees. And so I asked Kamran as a young entrepreneur, when at this point in time, I think maybe we had a team of six and I was struggling. I said, how could you possibly you know, have two teams of thousands? And he said, well, uh, you need to think about your job differently. So what do you mean? He's Persian, but he used an American biased analogy here, which is what Americans call football, which I don't know why it's called football. It should be yeah, handball. I never but, understand that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Most entrepreneurs think the goal is to be the quarterback of the team that wins the Super Bowl. Right. And as the quarterback, nothing happens until you snap the ball. You call every player in the middle of the play field with all of your teammates. He said, but if you want to create a company that creates billions of dollars or more importantly, impacts billions of lives, because your goal cannot be to be the quarterback. It's got to be to be the coach. And as a coach, you have two jobs and only two. First one is get the best players that you can afford <laughs> right into the, into the positions that they're best at. Uh, and the second one is culture which is create a culture in which individually and collectively we do things that were formerly impossible, right? Where the sum of the parts is greater than its components. And this is a fundamental shift though, because as an entrepreneur, you're used to doing everything. You are the CFO, the COO, the chief salesperson, you're the software engineer, right? You're everything. As that starts to scale, you have to step back from the play of field and really focus on what a coach would focus on. And I think it's the only way that you can scale. But if you can do it well, uh, scale culture well, uh, that's the unfair advantage. I don't know if this is secret, but I would love to hear how do you go about... How do you do it? How, yeah. 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 So three-step process, just to try to make it simple. <laughs> First step is the fun step. It's what uh, all entrepreneurs, all companies, I think, love to do, which is you know, put your values and beliefs down on paper. You know, what are the, you know, the values that you strive to guide your decisions as a company? Uh, what I would say is don't do things like excellence 
and integrity. <laughs> like that has no personality. It has no gravitas. It's not going to resonate for you or your team in any way that sticks. But first thing is really thoughtfully do that. You know, we have ours, we call it a manifesto, um, just reasonablegroup.com slash manifesto. One way to actually come up with, I think, really powerful values is to actually go and research the companies that you love the most, the brands that you most look up to, see what their values are, see what Nike, I forget what they call them. They don't call them values. I am maxims, right? But whoever inspires you, political parties, whatever it might be. But that's the first thing. Most companies stop there. They feel great about it. They put their manifesto and their values either in the lobby of their office or on slides in annual presentations. It means nothing. So the second step, which is most important, which is what are the policies, habits, traditions? What are your incentive structures? What are the stories that you tell the nomenclature that you use that allows your values to show up in time and space? Mm. Uh, the, the analogy here is a school of fish. If you ever watched a school of fish, there could be 5,000 fish and they move together in this beautiful kind of pattern, right? And, and it almost looks like they're a singular organism. Yep. The question is, how do they do that? Is it that there's a CEO fish in the middle of that school yelling at them to turn left, turn right, go? Like... No, of course not. Right? What it actually is, is it's the individuals have a guided set of behaviors that lead to this you know, collective emergent behavior, which in this case would be culture. So for the fish, let's say they had three policies. Right? The first one is swim as closely as possible to the fish next to you. Second policy is if you see food, swim towards it. Third policy, if you see something dangerous, swim away from it. All of a sudden, you have, in essence, a form of culture, right? Where it doesn't matter if it's five fish or 50,000, they'll, they'll move together in, in, in a unified way. And so that's how this is the job of the CEO, which is to figure out those policies, traditions, habits, nomenclature, stories, and incentive structures. So unbelievably important that allow your teammates to very easily live those values on a daily, weekly, quarterly, annual rhythm. I know I'm talking in abstract. I haven't heard anyone else explain culture so beautifully and so visually and so simply, actually. Simply. Well, there is a third step. So I always thought that when I started on this journey, there were two, which was the one I just analyzed. And then I realized that actually your traditions and your policies and your nomenclature and your incentive structures need to evolve with the business. And so your third step needs to be to constantly try to get step two more proximate to your values as set in step one. And so how we do that is something we call a culture pulse survey. We, we now just do it twice a year. We used to do it four times a year. But we'll send a completely anonymous survey out to all of our teammates. We say, rank us. 0 to 10, how well are we living all of our values? And each value individually. So we might have a value of health and family first. We do have a value of health and family first. And let's say that on average, it comes back from the company that we have a 9.1 out of 10. That would be amazing. Almost unheard of. right? Yeah. But what's amazing about the Culture Pulse survey is that then allows us the opportunity to go back to the team and say, Hey, we got a 9.1 out of 10. That's great. But what might we do to go from a 9.1 to a 9.5? Right. Yeah. Another one of our values: managing energy is more important than managing time. We might get a six, let's say, right mm -hmm. out of ten. But the previous culture pulse survey, we had a seven, and that raises 
it's a fascinating conversation. What happened differently in the last six months that led to a, a decrease in how we're living these values? And what we'll do is we'll have these conversations with the team. It's a really simple you know, process. And out of that, you are constantly then changing your policies and your habits and your traditions to get them more proximate to your values. The things that change really uh, infrequently are your values. Right. I am, and you know, for us, we, we have a, a set of values and we have one law and that law is entrepreneur centricity is the only thing that will like never change for us, but we may very well yeah, update the language and framing of some of our values as we evolve as an organization. But that's, that's a slow process, mm-hmm. but changing your habits and policies and traditions is, is, is faster. What's really nice as a CEO is you don't have to come up with it. Your team will tell you if you give them the forum and, and you genuinely listen. So it actually demystifies it. But I think that over time, that leads to a culture worth caring about. I love it. And I usually don't summarize, but I feel like this is worth summarizing. So let me see, let me see if I got it correct. The three-step yeah. process. Step one is write down your values. Yeah. You know, find out what's your inspiration, what you think internally, write it down. Number two, come up with traditions, policies, incentive structure, stories, yeah. nomenclature that make that real for people. And then yeah. number three is have a forum or a tool or something to understand what the pulse of the organization is totally. and how close you are to living the values. Go and back to they, number two to fix it. Exactly. Okay. And that third one is where they anonymously rank you with numeric value how well you're living each of the values, but it has to be anonymous. And it's very important for it to be numerical because then it just gives you an easy point to have a conversation and to track if you're doing better or worse, you know, over time and it constantly evolves. No, super valuable. Culture is such a nebulous, touchy-feely thing that this kind of structure really helped me at least understand how it can be more real for entrepreneurs. Okay, so we've almost come to the end of the podcast. And at the end, I like to just ask a rapid fire round of questions. Yeah. So you ready, Dan? I am ready. Okay, excellent. What's your favorite book? Yvonne Chouinard's founder of Patagonia, Let My People Go Surfing. Favorite productivity tool? It's mean, an interesting one. It's actually Breathwork, but an app uh, called the Wim Hof Method. It walks you through. I, I, I find it a way to stay incredibly focused. I pay more attention to my breath. Nice. Well, I don't know if it's the same as my third one, which is what's your favorite way to de-stress or unwind? Oh, no, it's different. Okay. Uh, because that one's hard. You're like holding your breath for multiple minutes and it's not, it's not, not stressful. <laughs> not, <okay>. uh, <laughs> that is uh, to get out into wild places, yeah, mountain biking or yeah, off-piece backcountry skiing, just, just to get into the hills. The Japanese talk about, there's a tradition called forced bathing. For me, relaxation is mountain bathing, just, just to get outside. Well, spoken like a true Colorado. Coloradian? Yeah, <laughs> I, think so. I don't know what, I don't know what called, the word yeah. is, but whatever. <laughs> True person from Colorado. Okay. And my last one, what's your favorite quote? It doesn't have to be your quote, but just a quote that, you know, means a lot to you. Yeah, the, the one, Margaret Mead said that never doubt that a small group of individuals can change the world. Um, indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. It's powerful. I think like, you know, I look across just the portfolio of a reasonable fellows. Of, oh my gosh. When they realize their full potential, like history will be bent in the right direction. That's just a cadre of 250 people. So I think that one stands out. And we've never need change more than we need it now. So we just need small groups of people everywhere to get to work. So true. Well, 
that does bring us to the end of the podcast, Daniel. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Is there anything I've missed asking you that you want to talk about before I say thank you? You know, I think, Anita, we hit so much. (laughs) Yes, I could talk to you for hours. I mean, the one thing I'd love to hear is more of your story uh, than mine. I don't want to become too loquacious. Uh, So just appreciate this uh, very much and the opportunity. Maybe the one thing actually I will say is the European community in terms of startups, I'd say that we're seeing more innovative solutions around, uh, especially around sustainability coming out of Europe than almost anywhere. If people have ideas on how we can also better support the startup community across Europe, we'd love to be there. And as as we mentioned, if you're an entrepreneur or an investor in Europe and, and you want to get involved, our website, you know, please reach out. We will respond. That that form always gets responded to by somebody on our team. Yep. Perfect. Thank you so much. And you're absolutely right. I think Europe, I've interviewed a number of different startups and I definitely see a lead when it comes to food, food waste, mobility. These are all areas where Europe definitely has taken a lead. Energy. Sustainable energy. Yeah, sustainable. way ahead. The US is 10 years behind. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, of course, I think the government policies help. Yeah. And and just in general, the, the European way of thinking, I think, has a bit more socialism attached yeah. to it that Agreed. brings these to life. But anyway, Agreed. thank you so much, Daniel, for being on my podcast. I think this was a really interesting conversation. And I hope a lot more European entrepreneurs contact you and you support more of those with Barclays and other partners. So thank you very much. I hope so as well. Thank you, Anita. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.